Welcome to the Beyond the Bubble podcast on this June 4th, 2020 day here in Washington, D.C. I'm Alex Rorty, a political correspondent for McClatchy. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. Instead of the usual political chit chat because of the extraordinary events that have occurred in this country since the death of George Floyd last week in Minnesota and the subsequent protests that have gripped the country and really put it, I think, in an extraordinary moment and made it a very important moment in this country. So we're going to, instead of discussing the electoral implications, uh, this week we have brought on a pair of reporters who have actually seen and covered the protest up close in their respective cities. I want to welcome on Joe Bustos, who is a staff reporter from the state newspaper, who has been uh, covering the protest in Columbia, South Carolina, the, the capital of that state. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And we are also privileged to have on the show Carl Juist, uh, who is a photojournalist for the Miami Herald, who has been covering the protest in South Florida all week. Carl, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Okay, so guys, let's let's jump right in. And I think just just to start this week's episode, I'm just going to have you guys describe what, what you've seen, what you've heard from the protesters, what the protests have been like, and if there's anything in your own experience as, as both as veteran journalists, whether there's anything that, that compares to it that you can remember in your own experience. Joe, let's Let's start with you. You know, one of the things I would say to the listener when we were deciding which reporters to have on the show this week, we, we kind of quickly realized that every city has a protest right now. A lot of the coverage on the cable news networks will focus on places like Washington or New York or Los Angeles. But the truth is almost every city in America has seen these kinds of protests and has seen the tensions that have come because of the protests. In Columbia, South Carolina, Joe is no different. Yeah. Uh, so on Saturday, they started off with a peaceful protest at the at the state house. They sang "Amazing Grace." The local sheriff actually marched with with uh, the protesters for about two and a half hours. The mayor was handing out water and masks to, to protesters uh, in this coronavirus age. And then it eventually, after that, they marched from the state house to the Columbia Police Department. That's where a standoff happened. Police took a, um, a defensive stance around their department as people shouted at them. Some of our reporters eventually caught images of people who turned non-peaceful. There was a couple squad cars that were set on fire. There were eventually windows broken and there were bricks and water bottles thrown. And that's when you started to see some of the more violent images from Columbia's protest on Saturday and eventually led to a curfew being set in the city around the areas where the protests were happening. Yeah, Joe, I mean, I feel like we have seen that in, in other cities where for the most part, and certainly during the day that the, the, the protests are very peaceful. They're really focused on, on the message that they have against police violence, against African-Americans. It seems to be sometimes at the end of the night, that's where some of the tensions start to rise a little bit. But just for the for the listeners, can you describe me, how many people are we are we talking who have participated in the protests? Are there any community leaders involved in them? Yeah, I think uh, there are probably a few thousand people out there. I don't have the crowd count in front of me, but you definitely saw the sheriff, the mayor, definitely some state representatives, especially from the Black Legislative Caucus that were out at the protests. And then there was a former congressional candidate, young man by the name of uh, Lawrence Nathaniel, who was 
organizing the peaceful protests out there, calling for usage of body cams by, by police officers, calling for police reforms and increased conversations between the police department and communities of color. Carl, what, what have you seen in, in South Florida? What's the, been the experience down there? The first protest I covered was in, on Sunday, which is the day after the disturbance that we had on Saturday night in Miami. The protests started with an event at uh, Wayne Huizenga Park, which is situated off the banks of New River in Fort Lauderdale. To kind of paint a picture for you, imagine, you know, pleasure boats, yachts going by, and, and then in the foreground are signs for equal justice, uh, Black Lives Matter, and all sorts of other things, which I cannot even say on, on your broadcast. So it started out, you know, like most protests and or assemblies, you know, keynote speakers, uh, members of the local chapter of Black Lives Matter, very, very well organized, good use of space, uh, handing out water, making sure people um, wear masks. Uh, as far as social distancing, it's kind of impossible during a protest for that to occur. And then they proceeded to march, and at first they didn't give an exact location or destination where the march would lead. So they went up Broward Boulevard, which is a major thoroughfare that runs east to west from downtown Fort Lauderdale to I-95. And then maybe about two or three blocks, they said, hey, we're going to stop by the Fort Lauderdale Police Department. Now, one thing I did notice that there were nearly on the, on the fringes of, of the march, there were, there were people kind of, kind of organizing some type of conversation about having an alternate source of, of political expression, uh, just to, say, to, keep it, to keep it light. So when they got to the police department, they took down the, the city flag and put up an American flag with uh, inscription, justice, for some and raised it up. And that kind of put the police on alert. They had police on the roof looking down onto the crowd. But Black Lives Matter chapter, the, uh, the uh, Broad Alliance told everybody, remain calm, we're here in peace. And they did what they had to do. They chanted some slogans, did some call and response. And then the group, well, probably about a couple of hundred people, then turned and headed back to the park. That's when things got really interesting, because on the west part of Briar Boulevard, maybe a block away, police had already assembled and blocked off the street to traffic in both directions. So the organizers kind of corralled everybody, made sure no one's left behind, and they were trying to return back to, to the, the origin where the, where the protest started, and a small group, or maybe about 10 to 15 people took it upon themselves to try to agitate and kind of divide the, the, the large crowd. And I saw a group um, kind of walked across the street with a gentleman holding a, a, a big stone and they proceeded towards the SunTrust Bank. And he must not have been from South Florida because anybody knows that all these commercial properties have impact windows. <laughs> so he, he tosses, I mean, I'm trying to shoot this, but I'm so far away. I can't really get, I can't move fast enough, but I could see it. 
but I can't really record it as well as I would like to. I think I picked up my camera, but they were so small in the frame. He picked up this, this, this rock and tossed it, and it just bounced back. And then quickly, quickly, and I, I don't mean to laugh because it's comical in, in, in one sense. It goes to show how little they know of the area or how little they know, you know, they saw the bank and they thought, oh, this is a great place to make, to make a point or to start some type of, of, of looting. So quickly, quickly, within seconds, the organizers ushered and said, no, no, this is not what we're about, went and approached the group because they had tried to rejoin, said, no, we're going to go down to Las Olas, which is an affluent shopping and, and inter entertainment um, uh, corridor in, in downtown Fort Lauderdale. They say, no, no, we have to return back to the park. So they finally convinced them to return back to the park. They crossed the street. We're back on the eastbound lane. And then they decide they want to hit a CVS. Well, again, Black Lives Matter organizers got in front of them and said, no, we're not going to tolerate this. Now I'm watching this from afar because I'm, I'm standing way in the back and this group is moving really fast. And I'm keeping an eye on them just in case things go crazy. So they diffuse the situation, they continue, they continue eastbound, and to the, to the south we see at the Andrews Avenue Bridge, they've occupied the bridge. So now, which was great, because now these people decide, hey, we go over, the, over that side instead of going to Las Olas. I think if they would have gotten to Las Olas, it would have been a whole different story. Florida was right in the midst of kind of reopening slowly, so they probably would have some restaurants, maybe some businesses open. So, so they gravitated towards the bridge, after which they were not enough. They didn't want to end the protest. So they proceeded on to this uh, municipal parking area in which they kind of had a, an act of defiance. And they stood in front of the line of Florida police officers chanting, of course. And an officer from Fort Lauderdale went to confront the small group of protesters. And he was surrounded, and all the protesters surround him, either taking a knee or raising their hands. Someone must have said something to agitate him. I shot a frame of him looking back at a woman on her knees. And the look that he was giving her was not, was not kind whatsoever. Another officer, a female black officer, proceeded towards, saw this coming. And for some reason, the officer turns around. The black officer says, please, you have to leave. We don't need, we don't need this tries to pull him. As he turns around, he pushes the woman that's on her knees, which then started a barrage of, of projectiles, of water bottles, some rocks going towards the officers. So they pulled them out of the situation, and then all of a sudden, everything started getting tense. They fired rubber bullets, gas. I was right in the middle of it. I'm trying to navigate, trying to get around, trying to get into a spot where I wouldn't be hurt, but at the same time, that I could still continue to work. I got consumed by, by you know, I had a N95 mask, but that's not gonna do anything but tear gas. So I, I tried to find some higher ground and move away, started making some frames, I made some videos, made some stills. I actually caught one of the, one of the protesters tossing the bottle over. And that small group, I think their main purpose was to agitate and to confront. Joe, what do you think, because I don't want to lose sight in all of this, and, and Carl, that was a pretty gripping 
story of, of in really like a first person look at what it felt like to be in the, in the middle of one of these protests. I mean, Joe, what, what is the message right now? And what are what is the connection to the real public policy argument? Because I know nationally there has been discussion about ending or at least partially ending qualified immunity, which offers legal protections to police officers. The discussion from that all the way to defunding the police, uh, which is something you see a lot of liberal activists talking about now in a way that just wasn't true two weeks ago. Joe, what are, what are you hearing? What are the people saying in Colombia? I mean, so I talked to one protester, a peaceful protester on Saturday, and she was, she was out there saying, I, I have a, a son and five grandsons, and I want them to be able to interact with the police without being in fear of their life and how to properly interact with the police without uh, without getting killed or getting hurt. Here are the Legislative Black Caucus talking about hate crimes legislation in South Carolina. South Carolina doesn't have a hate crimes law on the books. One of the things that was interesting is the Black Caucus here. They are talking about a task force that deals with police reform, similar to a task force that the Republican governor, Governor Henry McMaster, set up for reopening from the coronavirus. So they want their issues heard. Talking to the sheriff uh, in, in Richland County has spoken about like how they have been trying to have these conversations over the years, and they're open to having these conversations. Uh, talking about more transparency with the police department, and uh, and they will continue to do that. They just held a news conference with the Columbia police chief and the sheriff did, and talking about they're always open to these meaningful conversations with with the African American community communities of color. Joe, let me, I mean, let me ask you. I mean, this is um, even in recent years there have been deep concerns expressed about the police's relationship with the African-American community. These issues are, are, you know, obviously go back basically to the, the nation's founding. And, you know, even in recent years, whether it was Ferguson or something else, we have seen these kinds of protests. Did you get any sense though, from, from talking to people, why this time seems different? I mean, why the, the response has been, has been so forceful and, and widespread in a way that we have not seen in the span of most of our lifetimes? We've had a team of reporters working on this, and one of the things that we've been seeing is there's not just black people out protesting. Right. We're seeing white people out protesting with holding signs that say Black Lives Matter. So that might be something different, other than also this just being in every city, right. <laughs> other than just where the the incident, the, the George Floyd incident happened. I don't mean to demean it, it's just an incident where the death of George Floyd happened. So it's happening everywhere, and it's seeing a diverse crowd at these protests is something that makes it feel different than before. Well, in fact, you see that reflected in some national polls that have been released this week, actually, when people are asked whether or not they think that African-Americans face greater barriers than, than other citizens in this country. The responses now are overwhelmingly in the public that people think that's true. And, and that wasn't the case five years ago. I mean, you can compare the poll numbers, even in the aftermath of something like Ferguson. You didn't see that kind of support. You also see majority of Americans now saying the police are more likely to be violent when, when dealing with African-Americans, too. Again, that's that's a big change. We've seen it, at least in the immediate aftermath, that there has been a sizable shift in public support. And to your point about what, you know the crowds being diverse, when I covered a, a protest march here in Washington on Tuesday, I mean, it was the same thing. It was just in, incredibly 
diverse, this is a very diverse city and, and the protests really reflected that. And of course, concentrated among young people. I mean, you, you could say that not, not everyone, but certainly concentrated among young people and young people in this country are an incredibly diverse group. Carl, let me pose the same question to you. Why do you think that this time has been different? Well, there's a couple of things that are happening. Well, you didn't have older people there because of COVID. It's not that they didn't want to be there. There's an enormous amount of health risks. You have the, the pandemic of 1918. You have the economic collapse of 1929. And then you have the civil rights struggle of 1968, all happening in the span of three months. All happening in the span of three months. It's like adding gas to, to fire. And I think people understand that when a black man specifically is killed, I think they begin to understand that it's no longer about him, but it's about us. What does that say about us as a society, especially in, in, the, in this current environment, both political, social, and cultural environment that we're now living in? So you have this convergence of all of these emergencies, this, this almost a perfect storm, which is testing the tenants of this country. And I think for the most part, people are beginning to understand that it's not about them, it's not about him or her, it's about us. Joe, what, what's been the response from local officials and state officials in South Carolina? Again, Columbia is the, the capital of the state. You know, I feel like we have seen a real divergence across the country, but what's been the response in Columbia? So Governor McMaster has publicly said he supports the peaceful protesters. Republican governor, a big Trump supporter, he, he supports the peaceful protesters. He called the death of George Floyd tragic. But he also, when some of the protests were getting out of hand in Columbia and Charleston, he brought up the National Guard to Charleston to help make sure that this was on Sunday, to make sure that didn't get out of hand for a second day in a row. And he was on a call with the president talking about how he thought some of the some of the looters and rioters may have been paid. Now, we've asked a couple of police departments if they have any evidence of that. The Columbia Police Department says they don't have any evidence at this time. The sheriff's office says they're looking into it, but they know of incidents that happened in the past. When the Confederate flag protests happened in, in South Carolina five years ago, Sheriff Lott, the Richland County Sheriff, said he arrested someone who came from Virginia, got a bus ticket, and was paid to uh, create havoc. He said that during a press conference a couple days ago. So there is a concern that that might be happening here. We just haven't seen a formal announcement of it. The local sheriff and the Columbia police chief just had a press conference where they announced the arrest of four people, two black men, two white men, and some of the destruction that they carried out. And they even added that they're looking for another person, another white male who's part of this Boogaloo group, this far right group, causing trouble on, on Saturday. So they've been looking at a lot of social media to try to figure out who was causing all the trouble, who were not peaceful protesters, who were just there just to, to create havoc. In my case, some of the um, organizers with, with, um, with, Black, with Black Lives Matter, they, 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 they feared that their, their protests would be hijacked. And, and they were definitely on guard 
to make sure that did not occur. And it did not occur officially because the parade had come to an end at four o'clock and the disturbance happened between 4.30 to five o'clock. So officially the protest was over when, when things got really heated and these protesters decided that they're now going to move back to the original site of the rally, which was Wayne Huizenga Park. While I was walking, I, you know, I, you could hear whispers and you could hear people walking over, hey, hey, you know, we need to do something more bolder than this. This is, you know, BS, you know, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. No, no, we need to do more. I could hear those whispers. And that's what drew me to kind of keep a close eye on that, on that small little group that went to the side. If they're being paid or not, I have no evidence of that. But I could tell you what I saw, what I observed from my vantage point was there was the sense of a small group of people trying to rally a larger group to destroy people's property. And I have to say about to categorize a protest, it was a, a very safe protest. Most of the police officers were really, to my experience, were open-minded and allowed people to vent their frustrations. Even when things got hot, I didn't have one police officer told me to get out. They allowed me to do my job, but they did request that I find higher ground because the, uh, I was being consumed by, by tear gas at the time. Are you okay? I mean, are you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 myself and, and a fellow photographer that was working with me, Alexa, we were overcome. And, and we couldn't get back to our car to file, and we had to wait several hours. I think we didn't leave the scene until like 9.30 at night. But um, yeah, I mean, I've covered protests in Haiti, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, all over the world. And I was struck by, by this administration that allowed to use their force to, to, to break up a, a peaceful protest in Lafayette Park just for a photo op. I've seen that before, and it was not in countries that I would call democratic. And I've seen that. It really shook me to my core. It really did. Joe, even your Republican senator from your state, Tim Scott, spoke out against it, not for very long, but did, did say that it was, it was inappropriate in so many words for the president to do that, which you know, for Republican lawmakers counts as pretty extraordinary criticism. Yeah. And Tim Scott has also talked about being the only African-American Republican in the Senate. And he, he has spoken about the, the challenges uh, black men have with police brutality. I know he spoke out against the, the, the shooting in Georgia when the video started to, to surface of that one, uh, of the shooting of, of the man that was out just for a jog. He's been very vocal when it comes to these types of issues. Guys, was there any response from just generally to what happened in Lafayette Park, which, of course, has, has earned rebuke from some Republican senators and the president's former secretary of defense, uh, James Mattis, wrote uh, a pretty extraordinary rebuke of the president yesterday because of that. But I'm curious, this on the ground, not just what happened in Lafayette Park, but the president's own speech when he declared himself, quote unquote, the president of law and order. Was there any response to that on the ground or, or, or frankly, do people just not care? what this president has to say. From the ground, no, not yet, but Rubio had made a comment, and I can't pull it up right now, saying that the president had the rights, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting, pretty much giving a, a, a comment of support of the president's action. 
I think that people on the ground know, at least they, they have an understanding of what they're dealing with. And for the most part, when I talk to people privately, they're not, they're not surprised. Any world leader that's willing to call countries S-hole countries or, or degrade women or degrade reporters, this is not a surprise to them. This is not, this is pretty much, you know, his MO. So I don't think they're surprised. You guys, I want to wrap up the conversation this way. I know that we are still in the middle of a, a, a pandemic. Um, yeah. And Joe, you just wrote this morning in the state about how cases in South Carolina are actually on the uptick. I mean, you do see that across the country. I mean, that this this is we are no longer in the crisis that we were in March and April, particularly in a place like New York City. But it's not as if the coronavirus has has gone away. It really it really hasn't. How much of a concern is there that these mass gatherings that tragically that it could spread the disease? This is a disease that's already hit disproportionately the African-American community. How much concern is there that that the protest, again, tragically could exacerbate that? Yeah, you don't see too much social distancing. Not everyone's wearing masks. And if you happen to be infected with the virus and you're at a protest, you're likely to be shouting really loudly. You're, you may be singing loudly. And that helps project the droplets that spread the disease everywhere. <laughs> it, so it, it, it is something that was brought up yesterday by public health officials. Now, they're not saying don't go out and protest, but if you know, if you have a mask available to hand out, That'd be a nice goodwill gesture. And I think they even did so themselves, or at least they're trying to themselves, trying to get masks handed out to, to people at, at, at these events, at these at these protests. So that is something that we started seeing uh, an increase in the percentage of tests coming back positive, And state health officials are concerned about that. Now, we'll see probably in a couple of weeks if it goes up even more because of these protests that have been occurring. Carl, you know, when I was in, in D.C., I was actually amazed. I mean, it was almost every single protester in this city, at least, was wearing a mask. It was actually kind of a, amazing to see. But look, it's a protest. People are going to be close right. close together. What, what did you see in Miami and Fort Lauderdale? Well, very similar. A lot of the protesters at the Fort Lauderdale rally did have masks. But this is the issue, is that when they talk to each other and they need to communicate among themselves, they pull the mask down, you know? So, and the, the exchanging of, you know, sharing water bottles, I mean, everything that you could possibly think that could, that could aid in the transmission of COVID was being done. The subconscious is, you know, because we're not used to operating in sterilization. And you have an event which being sterilized is, is counterproductive. So I'm, I'm also worried about myself because I got to navigate that, the crowd. I, I tried my best, but I can't do my job if to get a shot. I got to get close. And then you get tear gas and your natural instinct is, is to pull down the mask, okay? Because you can't breathe. So I just hope from what I'm reading and what I'm hearing from health officials, they say that, you know, there might be an uptick and I'm just hope that the uptick is not too far up that it is, exacerbates the situation. Uh, just final, final thought from both of you, Joe, I'll go to you first. How long do we think these protests could go on? Could they continue indefinitely? That's a good question. We saw the weekend protests here in Colombia, and then there were more, there were additional peaceful protests during the week outside the state house. 
And earlier today, one of the organizers of the, of the peaceful protests tweeted out, sorry, but Henry McMaster, we are coming to you this weekend. We are not paid. We are fighting to get paid equally and you owe us an apology. So we might see stuff coming on Saturday or Sunday. We're thinking about it here in the newsroom. We're all going to be put on call to, to possibly run out to, to, to cover something if demonstrations get out of hand. Um, well, I think with the second degree murder charge and the other three police officers also being charged for this horrific death of George Floyd, I think that it, it kind of reduced the pressure a little bit. But I think people are watching. They've been there before. You know, they've been there where the promises, especially in Miami, we had the McDuffie riots. I mean, I could go down the list of, of civil disturbances we had in, in this area. They've been there before, so they're watching very cautiously. But they're, you know, for the most part, they think it's a really good step. At least the people I'm talking to, they find this is a first step of many steps in order to find justice, not only in terms of this current event, but all the events prior to this. I don't think anyone wants to be a target. And the black community throughout the country and other communities of color find that for the most part, they seem to have a target on their backs and they want that target to be removed. Once they feel that that target is removed, I think you will see a change in terms of protests or when they have the idea that's been removed. Well, hey, this has been a great discussion from both of you. I want to thank you both so much, both for covering it and coming on the show to talk about it. And please, Joe and Carl, please stay safe here in the coming days. Thank you so much, Alex, and thank you for having us. And Joe, great to meet you, man. You too, Carl. Alex, thanks for having us. Joe, pleasure uh, to see you. Carl, uh, pleasure to talk to you for the first time. I know we'll keep talking about this. Uh, so again, thank you both very much. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Gavin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.